The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. The sermon today is a rich overview by Elder Mike Ivey on Matthew chapter 13 and the seven parables of the kingdom of God that are contained in that chapter. This sermon was preached at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, which is pastored by Elder Michael Goins. When I heard it on Grace Alone Radio Network, I contacted Brother Goins and asked if he would mind sending me a copy. This is one of the most thorough and accurate overviews of the parables of the kingdom contained in Matthew chapter 13 that I've ever heard. Due to the length of this sermon, we won't have a song today, but I hope you enjoy this sermon by Elder Michael Ivey called The Kingdom Parables. God has a very high view of the church. As a matter of fact, in terms of institutions that are situated in the world, and I would argue even institutions of principalities in heaven, There is no higher institution than Christ's church. I make that statement not out of boldness, but from the standpoint of considering the hierarchy of the church and comparing church hierarchy to the hierarchy of all other institutions, uh, worldly and even principalities in heaven. In the Ephesian letter, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the church. Now, we in the United States of America, or if it were Great Britain or Russia or wherever, would desire leaders who fear God and are submissive to his will, but in the sense of hierarchy, um, God has not set himself as the head of the United States of America. He has not set himself in that position. He demands our respect. He demands our obedience. He expects our leaders to submit themselves to him. But in terms of um, who's in charge, God is not actively participating in the governance of the United States of America. Not so where the church is concerned. God actively participates in his church. Not only is he the head of the church, Christ Jesus, but his love and his concern for the church is to such degree that he refers to his church as his bride. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, him being the head. So from the standpoint of relationship and proximity, there is nothing in the heavens or the earth that is more dear to the Lord than his church. Not only so, He uses his church to teach principalities and powers in in heaven. He's talking about angels. The manifold wisdom of God. In other words, there are things 
that the Lord does in his church and for his church and with his church that teaches angels about him. Now think about that for a moment. Do you all realize that part of your job as a member of uh, Jesus Christ Church and a, a follower of Jesus Christ is to teach angels? That's a big responsibility, isn't it? So God holds his church in great esteem and he has a high view of the church. As a matter of fact, there's no institution on earth that he holds in higher regard than he holds his church. The sad reality, however, is that we struggle to hold his church in the same high regard. And part of that is just our daily struggle with sin. But I would submit to you that part of it also is we losing our way. When I was a young man, I was a, a, an x-ray technician for a few years um, in my life before I went, moved on to other things. And um, in the course of my duties as an x-ray technician, from time to time, they would call me into surgery to take um, x-rays, um, usually when someone was having a hip replaced. And I would go in there, and I would go in there with great fear. Uh, you know, you have the whole issue of contamination, and you're bringing this big gawky machine into the surgical suite, and you might touch something with it, or I might bump into something and contaminate the field, and greatly disturb the process, and maybe even bring the process to a halt temporarily while re-sterilization could occur. And so I went in there with great fear and trepidation that I might do something wrong, and that if I did something wrong, it could have terrible consequence. You know, ultimately, it could be to the difficulty of the patient himself but even if that didn't occur, even if it didn't somehow impede the surgery, I knew that I was going to incur the wrath of the doctor, even if it was a simple mistake. So I went in very carefully. And in that surgical suite, it never one time even occurred to me to push the doctor aside and say, I'll finish this operation. Now that's absurd, isn't it? I was an x-ray technician. He was a surgeon. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the skill. I didn't have the experience. And frankly, I didn't have the emotional and intellectual makeup necessary to do that. Any way you think about it, I was unqualified to push the doctor aside and say, let me finish that. I can do a better job. And yet I would submit to you that in the world today, Christianity in the world today, has pushed the Lord aside and said, let me do it my way. Now here's the problem with that. First of all, we're not equipped to save souls. You know, we just can't do it. And if we engage in a task that we're ill-equipped to accomplish, and the outcome is failure, what happens? Well, I might redouble my efforts. I might think if I just uh, study a bit more, or if I just make contact with more people, or if I just pray harder, somehow I'll bring this person to Jesus and they will allow him into their heart and they'll get saved. And they still don't. 
they still don't. I'm amazed that not only is there altar calls with the intent of saving souls, but even those that have responded to the altar call are encouraged to come forward and rededicate. You know why that is? Because they're not sure about the first time. And neither are they sure about the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. And the reason that they're not sure is because they've been told that um, responding to that altar call will accomplish something that they're not capable of accomplishing. And so in their heart of hearts, they know that that was not the reason that they were born again. In that circumstance, we try harder. We still don't have any um, sense of satisfaction. We become frustrated. We progress from frustration to discouragement. And in our discouragement, we burn out and just say, well, it's just too much trouble. You know, I'll just go through the motions from now on. And the zeal is gone. But that's not the only problem. Do you understand that if I, as a minister of the gospel, believe that me preaching the gospel will get people born again, and I'm most concerned with that, I mean, rightly so, because if they don't get born again, they're going to go to hell. And if I have neglected my responsibility to preach the gospel, then I have some culpability in them going to hell. I don't know how I could avoid hell if I was culpable in someone else going to hell. You see the problem? That I've got to dedicate all of my energies to activities that focus on this one work of saving souls that frankly I'm not capable of doing. Well, what happens to the other stuff I'm supposed to be doing? It gets neglected, doesn't it? That's where American Christianity is today. For the most part, American Christianity is neglecting the basic activities that the Lord gave the church and the basic mission of the church to share the good news with brokenhearted sinners and to encourage others to commit their lives to following Christ Jesus. You say, well, boy, I'm sure glad that we primitive Baptists are not involved in that. I'm glad we... Uh, don't get caught up in that. Well, folks, I hate to tell you, but we are caught up in it. Not from the standpoint of going around trying to save souls and encouraging our, all of our neighbors and our uh, fellow workers and anybody that we run into to come to church so that they'll get their, their souls saved. We're not caught up in it that way. We're caught up in it from the standpoint that a great majority of our preaching seems to be focused on proving that we're right and they're wrong. And if the orientation of my efforts to preach the gospel is to show that we're right and they're wrong, and I'm successful, then all I've accomplished is showing that we're right and they're wrong. You see the problem? That's not why God gave us the gospel, to prove that we're right and someone else is wrong. That's not what the gospel is for. So I'm misusing the gospel. They're misusing the gospel. And if I spend all of my time preaching messages um, to demonstrate that we're right and they're wrong, I'm also guilty of misusing the gospel. And at the same time, 
I'm neglecting the genuine purpose of the gospel, um, which is to deliver that good news that heals broken hearts. Now, I said all that by way of an introduction of a text, uh, a chapter here in Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to look at chapter 13, where the Savior is dealing with this issue of a right perspective so far as the kingdom is concerned. We're going to start in just a moment, but before we start, those of you that were here yesterday morning um, may recall that I gave you a definition of context. I'm going to give it to you again. Um, I do this frequently because, frankly, I hear people talk about context very often when they do not have a clue what context is. There are three elements to context. Who is the speaker? Who is the audience? And what is the occasion of the speaking? In Matthew 13, the speaker is Jesus Christ. His audience, his immediate audience, is the 12 apostles. And then there are other disciples that are hearing these things, but not understanding. There are other listeners there that are hearing these parables that Jesus is teaching, but they're not understanding. And the way we know that they're not understanding is because Jesus says, I'm teaching in parables so they won't understand. So what is the occasion? And the, the occasion of this is very important for us to understand. I'm not going to go over and read it, but if you go over to, when you have time, if you go over to Matthew uh, chapter 10, Jesus has sent the 12 apostles out. He sends them out by twos. And in doing so, he instructs them to go out and preach and heal. Preach and heal. And in Luke's account, I believe it is, it says that he gave them power over devils, to cast out devils. Incidentally, he told them what to preach. He said, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means the, the kingdom of heaven is now present. It's here. And they've gone out and preached that message, no doubt telling um, what they understood about Jesus to those that they were preaching to. And they were laying hands on people and healing them, and they were casting out devils. And they come back, and they have this image in their mind of what it's going to be like uh, to be a preacher of the gospel, that they're just going to go out there, uh, preach the word, and even the devils are going to be subject to them. In the meantime, something else has happened. Jesus sends the twelve out. And then if you um, look in the next chapter, while they're gone, John sends his disciples to Jesus. John is in Herod's dungeon and is about to have his head cut off. And he knows he's about to die. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the one... Or should we seek another? Do you see the contrast there between the experience of the apostles and the experience of John? The apostles are pumped up. You know, everything that they endeavored to do, they accomplished. People responded. People gathered when they started talking about Jesus. And they would come with their maladies and their injuries. And uh, they would lay hands on them and they'd be healed. Or if they were possessed of devils, they would cast the devils out. And everything that they did turned immediately to God's glory. And that's how they perceived the kingdom. Boy, this preaching the gospel is going to be a world of fun. 
we're just going to go around doing good things and everybody's going to love us. And people, when, when the word comes that we're headed toward their village, the people will all come out of the village to meet us. And John has come. He's delivered the message that Jesus, that the Lord gave him. He identified Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He even was privileged to baptize the Savior, though unworthy he felt. He did everything the Lord told him to do to the utmost of his abilities. And now he's about to get his head chopped off. That's John's view of the kingdom. You do everything the Lord wants you to do, and in the end, it doesn't make any difference. You just get your head cut off. That's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Which perspective is correct? Is the perspective of the apostles that have gone out and accomplished all these mighty deeds and preached the gospel, is their perspective correct? Or is John's? that you do everything that the Lord wants you to do, and it does not turn out well. In that circumstance is the occasion of Jesus giving these seven parables. And before I read the, the parables, before we go into the meaning of the parables, I want you to understand something about parables. Parables are not types and shadows. A parable is a made-up story and its meaning extends no further than its context. In other words, what the author of the parable meant at the time of the giving of the parable is the whole meaning of the parable. Okay, now it can have other broader applications, but the whole meaning is in the giving of the parable. They're not types and shadows, and for the most part, they're not allegories. They're made-up stories. And these seven parables are stories that Jesus made up. Secondly, when Jesus explains the meaning of a parable, where he stops his explanation is where we stop our interpretation. In other words, for me to take a parable and Jesus explains what this parable means, and then I say, well, it means that, but it also means this over here. Do you understand what I'm doing? I'm saying, well, Jesus really didn't understand what he had on his mind at the time when he gave this parable, and his explanation is inadequate, so I have to fix it up. So when Jesus explains a parable, the whole meaning of the parable is in his explanation plus nothing. And Jesus explains some of these parables. And the reason he does it is because they're hard to understand and we would have never figured it out if he hadn't explained them. So let's get into this now. And um, I've used up so much time on the explanation, but we'll get through this very quickly. It says in chapter 13, we're going to begin in uh, verse 3, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he had sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and, and the fowls came and devoured it. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, um, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell upon good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, who hath ear, let him hear. 
Now Jesus explains the meaning of the sower of the seed. And what is absent from his explanation is an assignment of which seed represents who is saved and who is not saved. Now, the absence of that information ought to be significant enough to us that we would understand that it is an abuse of this parable to use it that way. That if we're going to use it to decide who's saved and not saved, we're assigning significance and meaning to it that Jesus omitted in his explanation, and therefore we're implying that Jesus was inadequate in his explanation of the parable. This parable is not about who's saved and who's not saved. This parable is about different reasons why folks respond differently to the message of the gospel, and that's the whole meaning of it. That's the whole meaning. Now, I could go into the details of the, of the reasons, but we won't take time to do that. Um, Jesus explains the, um, the various reasons why people respond in different ways to the gospel. And the upshot of, of all of it is most people are not going to hang in there where the gospel is concerned. That um, three out of four um, don't stick with it, so to speak. Okay? So the very first thing that he's telling his apostles is, and I know that you had all of this success while you were out there preaching the word and healing and casting out devils, um, but understand the way it's really going to be in the kingdom is that most of the time, even people who at first embrace the gospel will not stay with it. And furthermore, the way that you can know that someone is taking the message of the gospel to heart is that they're going to produce fruit. Now, they're not all going to produce the same amount of fruit or the same kind of fruit, but they will produce fruit. That's another way of saying you can understand that the gospel has taken hold in someone when they begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus, which is evidenced by them taking the lessons of the gospel and applying them in their own lives and sharing them to the benefit of others. Now, Jesus understood human nature. He understood that if you're out there just studying as hard as you can and just searching through the scriptures and you're getting up on Sunday morning and you're preaching the gospel and you're going out into the world and you're sharing the good news with everyone that you come in contact with and most people are just kind of looking at you hollow-eyed, that you're going to start thinking that they're not saved. Okay? And so he gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we know the parable of the wheat and the tares, how a man planted wheat and an enemy came in and sold, sowed uh, tares among the wheat. And when the tares began to come up with the wheat, the servants of that man um, saw that and they went to him and said, do you want us to pull the, the tares up and get it out of the wheat? He said, no, don't do that. The wheat's too important. I don't want to lose one stalk of wheat. So what I'm going to do is wait until it's harvest time. And the harvesters are going to be experts at identifying tares and removing tares. And I'll take care of the tares at the harvest. Then Jesus explains it. He says the wheat are the children of God. He says the tares are those who are not saved and are never going to be saved. He said the harvest is the end time. It's the resurrection. 
The harvesters um, are the angels who are going to collect the tares and prepare them to be burned in an oven. And of course, that oven we know is hell. And then the wheat will be gathered from the harvest to the Lord of the harvest. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying it's not our job to go about looking at people and making decisions as to whether or not they are saved. Do you understand the problem with that? Right off the bat, I could decide that someone is not saved because they hurt my feelings and I haven't got over it. And so I'm looking for things to, to be critical of them about. And of course, there's nothing you can be more critical about than someone's eternal destiny and saying you're going to hell. So the problem of judgment could be my bad judgment because I'm prejudiced. But even if I'm being unbiased, there's still another issue. I might have just caught this person on a bad day. This could be David coming out of battle and, and uh, viewing Bathsheba and committing unspeakable sin. Just caught him on a bad You know, if that's all you knew about David and you were picking people to go to heaven, you probably wouldn't pick David. Or it could be that this is like the Apostle Paul before the Damascus Road. I'm looking at Paul as he's wreaking terror and havoc and murder on the church, and I'm saying if there was ever anybody that's going to hell, this guy is. And then the Lord changed him. So right off the bat, there are three good reasons why it would be wrong for me to make decisions about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And then the Lord, of course, gives another one. If you make a mistake, if you make a mistake and you write this person off, it could have far-reaching consequence on them. It could cripple them in ways emotionally. It could do damage to, to their life, being deprived of the gospel that they might not recover from in this world. He said, don't do that. You're not equipped. And you'll make mistakes and the mistakes will hurt the wheat. You see that? So Jesus says the kingdom of God is that most people are going to reject you. And when they reject you, the natural tendency is to decide that they're going to hell, but don't do that. You're not equipped to make that determination, so you shouldn't even go there. And then he begins to tell us what the kingdom is going to be like. And I love these following parables and the things that he describes about the kingdom. You see, if he had stopped with those two things, then they might have looked at it and said, you know, John may be right about how this kingdom thing is. It may be that you, you, know, you just work and work and work and people oppose you and then you die. But he didn't leave it there. He gave us some, some constructive information about the kingdom, and in this information is embedded our responsibilities, our responsibilities in the kingdom. Let's um, look at this very quickly now. In verse 31, he said, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, 
so that uh, the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, the image that Jesus is presenting here, and you know, if you if you ever think that you're just one person, you're not the preacher, you know, you're not even the song leader, you're not particularly gifted in um, in exhortation through prayer, you know, you're just someone that shows up on Sunday mornings, and when you leave here, you try to lead a good life, and you feel like you're doing all you can do in the church, you know, uh, with the gifts that you have. Okay, do you understand? He's saying that the kingdom always has small beginning. The presence of the kingdom began with a man dressed in wild clothing and eating honey and locusts saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just a small beginning. And your kindness to a fellow worker, and the humility that you demonstrate when someone shows you gratitude for the kindness and you give God the praise for that and tell them how God has taught you that the way that you love Him is by loving those around you. Just that kind deed, a word of encouragement here or there, can be the beginning of the kingdom in that person's life. And that the kingdom is not huge revival meetings in which you know thousands of people come forward. Now, I understand at the beginning of the kingdom, there was large in-gatherings. But Jesus here is talking about typically how this works. And the way that this typically works is that churches grow when one member interacts with people who are not members of the church and develops friendship and those people gain confidence in that church member and then they invite them to come to church with them. Just a small beginning. Do you see that? Just a small beginning. You all are the mustard seed. And I'm thankful that he made it a mustard seed and, and not an avocado seed. You know, because the mustard seed says, well, I understand that I have a very important role, but I also understand in the greater scheme of things, I'm about as little as you can get. Then he gives the next parable. And it's the parable of leaven. And I understand elsewhere in Scripture, leaven is presented as sin, but it's not in this parable. In this parable, it's presented as a permeating, pervasive influence that if you put leaven in flour and knead it into the flour and then put it in an oven, the leaven affects the whole portion of that flour so that the whole thing will rise. That's the image that he has here of a woman kneading the leaven into the, um, into the meal so that all of the flour is affected. In that sense, you're the leaven. Your pastor, if he dedicated um, every waking moment to going around and meeting people and inviting them to church, with all the other activities that he has, your pastor might be able to come in contact with 30 or 40 people in a week if he really worked at it. I'm talking about where there was a genuine opportunity to invite somebody. Maybe 30 or 40 people a week. But if a church has 30 or 40 members, and they're all interacting with, you know, 50, 60, 100 people a week. And that gives them 10 or 15 opportunities per week 
to make contact with someone and develop a relationship and let them have some confidence and then inviting them to church. Do you see how the whole church is effective in growing the kingdom in that way? You're the leaven in the meal, which is God's kingdom. You're the ones that can touch other lives and do touch other lives. But it's important that you understand that interacting with other people is not simply because you work with them or because you go to school with them or because you're on a school board someplace with them or a committee someplace with them. Your interaction, first and foremost, the purpose of your interaction is to glorify God in your daily living and share uh, the greatness and the glory of God with anyone that will be receptive to it. That's why we're here, to give glory to God. You know, we're not here for a paycheck. We're not here to get educated. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a paycheck. It works out pretty well. But in the process of doing that, the Lord is providing you not only with a way to feed your family, but with a way to share His praise, honor, and glory with other people, the people that you come in contact with, whether it's in school or on your job or wherever. That in every circumstance of life, the foremost question um, that we should have as we approach that circumstance is, who are you, Lord, and what would you have me do? The who are you, Lord, is from the standpoint of what is there about the Lord that I can focus on in my relationship with this person, and how does the Lord want me to do it? And so, God's little children are the leaven. And when we are engaged the way that we are supposed to be engaged, the whole lump, the whole of the flower is touched. Do you understand that the reason the United States of America is in the mess that it is today is because Christians are not being salt and light or for this parable is concerned that we're not functioning as leaven for the whole lump? that we're not having the kind of influence that we ought to be having um, in our communities and from our communities um, on up. Because things have gotten a little tough, we've adopted a bunker mentality and we're just down in the ground keeping our heads low trying to keep from getting wiped out. God doesn't intend that. He wants us to be leavened. He wants each one of us to have an impact in the little world that is our life so that the whole world is affected when all of his children um, are having impact in the small world of their own life. The next two parables go together. Both of them um, have to do with something of great value. One is a treasure in a field, and the other is a pearl of great price. And both of these parables present to us a lesson of commitment. Because in both instances, when the treasure in the field was discovered, and when the pearl of great price was finally located, the ones that had the happy circumstance of discovering these things sold everything they possessed in order to possess this thing of great value. Whether it's the treasure in the field, are the pearl of great price. But there's a difference in the two parables also. The man who discovered the treasure 
was just out walking around, doing whatever it was that he needed to be doing at the time, just taking care of business, and he stumbled on a treasure. Okay. Whereas the other man was a pearl merchant. A pearl merchant is someone who is expert at grading pearls. A pearl merchant, and this man was a, an expert among experts, evidently, because he was looking for just one pearl. He was looking for that perfect pearl. He was looking for that pearl that was incomparable among other pearls that was superior to every other pearl. Sounds like someone we know, doesn't it? When Jesus came, he came looking for the pearl of the elect family of God. He came looking for um, your redemption. And then he realized that there was no price too great to pay in order to possess you as that pearl of great price. His face was set as flint. When it came time to pay the price, he would not be deterred. When it came time to pay the price, he understood that if it cost him his life, which in fact he knew it would, that the pearl was still worth the price and that he would yet possess the pearl even if he gave his life to possess it. The pearl merchant provides us with the standard of our pursuit in possessing the treasure in the field. When the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't on the road to Damascus looking for Jesus. He wasn't on the road to Damascus because someone said, you know, if you'll take the Damascus road, Jesus will be over there and you can confess that he is the Savior and ask him to come into your heart and he will save you. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, the Lord just suddenly appeared. That's how the Lord appears in our lives. And when the Lord so appears in our lives, we need to understand that his perspective of the pearl of great price and what he was willing to pay for us ought to be our perspective um, in pursuing fellowship with him. Whatever the price, I'm willing to pay because there's nothing better to be had in this life than a close walk with the Lord. There's nothing better to have in this life than the wisdom that God can give you as you go about your daily activities. There's nothing better to be had in this life than the comfort and consolation that you can experience during the trials and tribulations and times of sorrow in your life from the encouragement that the Spirit of God gives us in those down times. There's nothing in life that can teach us how to love one another. There's nothing in life that can make our marriages better. There's nothing in life that can give us more fulfillment in raising our children. There's nothing in life that can give us a sense of purpose more than following Christ Jesus. And there's nothing in life worth more. He is the treasure in the field. And Jesus concludes this, and I love this, with a happy ending. You see, the happy news of the gospel is not limited to the reality that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. The happy news of the gospel is that Jesus came and died for our sins coming the first time, and he's coming again to bring us home. 
And part of the glory of that is that we're not going to have to put up with the tears anymore. Part of the glory of that is that we're not going to have all the stresses and strains and problems um, in this world. And so he presents the fulfillment of his kingdom as a fisherman who draws his net in and it's full of fish. But he's only interested in the choice fish. He's only interested in those fish that are the pearl of great price that he already paid for. And so those are the ones that he brings to himself. And he casts the others out. Stop and think for just a moment. What life would be like if you didn't have any troubles? It's hard to think about, isn't it? You you can't think about it without thinking about the troubles that you'd like to be rid of. Now imagine living a life where there aren't even troubles to think about you wish you didn't have. That's the fulfillment of the kingdom. That's why it's a treasure in a field. And that's why you're a pearl of great price. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.